like my favorite Tinder profile ever just said, no gods, no masters, no selfies but with dead fish. (laughs) (laughs) It's a thing. It's a real thing. Hello and welcome to Black Box Poetry. Uh, we're here for another rousing, stimulating episode. This time we're talking about sonnets. But first, before we talk about sonnets, I want to introduce everyone who's here tonight. I'm Anastasia. I'm only your introducer, but after that, we're just comrades at arms. Say hey, team. Hey, my name is Sean, and I uh, study Victorian literature. I'm Isaac. I'm a poet and a translator of Russian and Ukrainian. And I'm Anastasia. I study late 20th century American poetry and edit. What are we up to today, guys? I guess we're talking about sonnets, the form, the first form episode we're doing, right? Yeah, I think so. Crazy. That's insane. Well, we're starting with the sonnet. The sonnet is a 14-line poem with an alternating rhyme scheme, if we're talking about an Elizabethan sonnet. That rhyme scheme gets a little bit messed up at the end, where the last two rhymes are usually a uh, couplet, so they are the same rhyme rather than an alternation. And lots of people vary how that rhyme scheme works. It's usually iambic pentameter, so that's an unstressed and then a stressed syllable. And iamb is a two-beat stress, two beats. You do that five times, that's where you get the iambic penta, pentameter. It's kind of the basic recipe for a sonnet. What else we got to say about sonnets? So if if you want to learn about the history of the sonnet, the, the best website to go to is www.google.com. And <laughs> the the only general thing I would say about it is that it's a form that has a sort of origin in, in court poetry. And when you look at early sonnets, they tend to be very mannered. They tend to really play on the use of address and social distinction, and if you think about the, the the shape of a sonnet, because it's 14 lines, the way that it's broken down uh, into pieces and the way that it, it really sort of confines uh, the poet to make the most of a limited amount of space really encourages a kind of showiness or a sort of virtuosic quality to it. One of the things that's distinctive about the sonnet is that it's nonetheless been pretty flexible. So there are other forms that emerge from a courtly context, like the Villanelle that are a lot more restrictive. With a sonnet, over the course of its history, people start mixing up the way that they break break down the 14 lines and the amount of restriction they place on themselves. Um, but there's something about that level of space that feels, you know, sort of uh, particularly useful for poets for a, a, like a, um, a particular unit of thought. And there's something about the uh, way that it can be broken up in, in interesting different ways that's been incredibly useful for a lot of different purposes. It's interesting what you're saying, Sean, about the way that poets, it's a funny length because 14 lines feels like just long enough to get like one idea through. Um, but it doesn't feel like a ton of pressure to work something full out. I think that's part of why sonnets seem to lend themselves to sonnet sequences. So a lot of poets will kind of write a bajillion sonnets. It's not usually like a one-off thing. You kind of like doodle that one on a napkin, and then all of a sudden you're writing 900 of them. And I think the other thing that's interesting about a sonnet is a sonnet does have this history in the courtly 
setting where it's more in terms of like a dress or performance, but it's sonnets are also partially for working things out or working ideas out, working out logically. So the other defining feature of a sonnet that I didn't quite get to is the volta, which is the turn, the turn in the poem. So in an Elizabethan sonnet, that usually comes right before the couplet. Um, in a Petrarchan sonnet, those old Italians, it's usually right after the first eight lines, the octave, before you hit the last six lines, the sestet. Um, and that means that where the logic kind of turns and how much space is dedicated to that logical leap um, will really change based on what form you're kind of working with. So it's funny that, that then it becomes kind of this interiorized thinking almost. So they're weird. Sonnets are weird. I think that last point you made is essential for our episode tonight. As you mentioned, all of our previous episodes have dealt with what a particular kind of poem is trying to achieve rather than the structure of the poem per se. The sonnet puts us in a different position where it comes with architecture that narrows the scope of what it's suitable to achieve. So we're dealing with a different kind of theme tonight than poems responding to a particular historical occasion or poems with a speaker or and an addressee or even short poems. Because over the course of the short poems episode, we talked about how the length itself is not the defining feature. There's something about the actual circuit diagram of the poem, the actual cognitive experience of reading the poem that makes it a short poem. We're venturing into new territory here because we're dealing with structure that is linguistic rather than cognitive. Yeah, let's look at some sonnets. So right off the bat, I thought we could go with a Shakespeare sonnet, not just because of the long shadow that his sonnets cast in the English tradition, but also because this particular sonnet, number nine, is a great continuation from our previous episode. Is it for fear to wet a widow's eye that thou consumest thyself in single life? Ah, if thou issueless shalt hap to die, the world will wail thee like a makeless wife. The world will be thy widow and still weep, that thou no form of thee hast left behind. When every private widow well may keep by children's eyes her husband's shape in mind, look, what an unthrift in the world doth spend, shifts but his place, for still the world enjoys it. But beauty's waste hath in the world an end, and kept unused, the user so destroys it. No love toward others in that bosom sits, that on himself such murderous shame commits. Part of what's interesting about this is that the speaker of this poem is continually narrating or uh, almost constructing the addressee's relationship to the world over the course of the poem. So I'm thinking about how early on he's saying, you know, if you die, the world will wail thee like a makeless wife. The world will be thy widow and still weep. So part of what he's suggesting is, oh, you don't want to get married because you're worried about leaving someone behind as a widow, but the world already feels married to you, which is, you know, kind of an absurd thing to say. And it works because it's premised on the idea that you're so beautiful and fantastic that the cosmos itself feels wedded to you, which is a, a, a banana's compliment. <laughs> the implication of the compliment is like, so, I mean, like, you know, get yourself together, you know, do what I'm telling you to do, like straighten up and fly right. Um, it's like incredibly pushy 
at one level, but that's completely sort of, you know, submerged into something that is incredibly sort of deferential and um, obsequious even, like complimentary to the point of being almost, you know, outlandish. But then in um, the last six lines of the poem, look, what an unthrift in the world doth spend shifts but his place, for still the world enjoys it. So there, rather than saying the world is married to you, the world is now this sort of unscrupulous, controlling presence that's extracting value from the addressee. So he's saying, you might think that you're being clever by holding back and not spending. Spending in the early modern period is a, um, a euphemism for, for orgasm. <laughs> but... You know, the world is still the the world is still enjoying it. The world's still getting something out of you while you're alive, even if you are trying to not uh, tie yourself down, have um, hostages to fortune by having children and a wife. Still, the world is doing just fine. And then he's saying, you know, but beauty's waste half in the world an end and kept unused. The user so destroys it. Um, so after sort of laying a, some kind of groundwork with this crazy compliment early on, you know, you're already married to the world because everyone loves you so much. You're just so handsome. You're so great. Now it's saying the world's fine and it's already extracting value from you. And really, it's only by uh, marrying and having children that you're going to be able to resist having all of this sort of use extracted from you just in general. Mm hmm. It was useful the way you broke that down, Sean, because you really um, targeted how the logic moves work in the poem, that basically we have this opening question that's in the first two lines that then gets an answer in the next four lines, no, the next six lines or so, and then when you get to that look, the logic changes again right before the final change in logic that we get with the couplet. So it's interesting that part of how this poem really moves itself is through these kinds of changes in logic, which I actually don't know that the rhymes, does the rhyme scheme give us kind of a hint of that turn that's coming? I don't think so, actually, which is interesting because the rhyme scheme definitely gives you the rhythm to move forward. You'll keep going forward anyway, but he's using these other kind of tools to make the poem unfold. So you have that, the question you want the answer to the question, so you move to the next line, and you're encouraged to do it anyway because of the rhyming. But even the changes in logic actually kind of encourage you to keep going also. Well, I think the element of the poem, structurally speaking, that serves the argument or is served by the argument is this closing couplet where we have this argument that's meant to be persuasive in each of the logical contexts we've been offered. We've got these different relationships that the addressee is placed in, but this final argument is applicable to all of them because of its accusation of a failure of altruism. That's something that's applicable to all of these different uh, configurations of the addressee's relationship with other phenomena. Mm -hmm. So this reference to children's eyes... I find very peculiar in terms of that shifting logic and especially in terms of reading this poem through the lens of the relationships that the addressee is being charted into. Children's eyes are, are bringing in a third point here. There's a literal meaning. There's the 
by children's eyes, her husband's shape in mind. That's the resemblance of the faces of the children to the husband, presumably. Mm-hmm. But am I wrong to think that there's a optical repositioning point of view element in here as well? It's certainly teasing that, even if it's not actually going for it. Yeah, I think that I think there is, and I think the reason there is is because. It, the argument doesn't really work there. So if the opening problem is you don't want to get married because you're worried that you'll leave a woman behind as a widow and she'll be sad, the counterargument is, aha, but if you have children, then she'll always see your face and her children. And that isn't actually addressing the initial problem. Right. It's a non sequitur. But what it is doing is it, it's almost sort of saying like, well, we can kind of, in a, in a weird way, sort of kick the can down the road or take a different vantage point. The situation that he's describing is now one in which not only is are, have you left a widow behind, but also you have fatherless children that you've left behind who presumably would also be sad. But in a weird way, he's kind of shifted the relationship from a, a, a lover-beloved relationship to a mother-child relationship, which in a weird way is sort of presupposing that this guy is actually going to get married and have children, but also it's shifting to a relationship that is, let's say a little bit more idealized, a little bit less fraught. It's sort of passed over so quickly that the version of it that we get is only the kind of idealized relationship where the, where the, the child is a sort of beautiful, you know, resemblance of the, of the father um, who's going to, you know, allow him to go forward in memory and have a measure of immortality. So first off, kicking the can down the road is the best metaphor for having children that I have ever heard. <laughs> But secondly, I think that's a very persuasive reading. What it sends me back to is, Anastasia, you were mentioning a moment ago how the rhyme scheme sort of keeps the reader going. You could argue that the virtuosity of successful rhymes and the rhythm of the uh, the meter and the rhymes serves to sort of paper over the fact that, you know, in symbolic logic terms this is not a sound argument but in poetic terms it is Mm -hmm. and the fact that the structure of the poem makes it uh, clip along like that enables the reader to be taken in in the same way that the addressee presumably or hopefully is from the speaker's perspective Right. No, totally. And I think actually um, the poem feels very aware of that. I liked when you said, Isaac, is there actually a shift in point of view or is it kind of a ruse? And I think the poem is very much um, capitalizing on the fact that it's a little bit of both um, because of the widow's eye, which obviously then gets kind of reiterated and no, 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 the widow's eye, the children's eyes. But the next line is about looking, right? Look what an unthrift in the world doth spend we're supposed to be kind of paying attention to eyes and seeing and looking, but this isn't an argument that fundamentally needs to even be thinking about that, right? This isn't an argument that needs to, that needs to be supported or corroborated with visual evidence. Um, and yet it kind of seems to want us to, to think about that maybe as like kind of like a red herring. I'm not really sure, but it's very aware of the fact that it's asking you to kind of perform these like kind of logical fallacies to make the argument make sense. It does feel like, the rhyme scheme really fits with the sense that we're having that there's a certain kind of sleight of hand quality through the whole poem. Yeah. Is even, you know, like in the first quatrain, we have I, life, die, wife, which has a similar vowel sound for all of them. And then when we get to the next quatrain, it's weep behind, keep in mind. 
And behind, again, has a similar vowel sound to wife, die, life, I. So it feels like we're still, you know, in some ways carrying forward, uh, you know, at least a similar vowel sound. And then in the next quatrain, we follow up behind in mind with spend and end, which has like a very similar sort of consonant sound. And then after that, the last quatrain is it and it, followed by the last couplet, which is sits and commits. So there's a certain way in which the sound of the poem is never as sharply contrasting as it could be. It's almost approaching a a poem where almost all of the end rhymes have something in common with most of the other end rhymes in the poem. No, that's a great observation. It's totally true. I wonder if that's part of why it does move along at such a good clip, because you don't really, you never get that jangly effect. You never get that kind of like seesawing that you'll get if if it really is an ABAB rhyme scheme most of the time with like very heavily distinctive rhymes. It creates that sense of kind of searching for what the next kind of similar sound is. And the poem's invested in that. We do have that anaphora at the beginning of line four and five, the world will, the world will. So yeah, that's a great observation, Sean. I think that makes a ton of sense. I think that too could be tied into the idea that the weakness of these arguments is being slipped by us because we don't go that far afield in terms of the vowel and consonant sounds that are getting deployed. The speaker is tricking us into believing that we're not going that far afield argumentatively either. Yeah. Yeah. I also just like, I want to give like a party shot to uh, enjoys it and destroys it. There is nothing I love more than, than a two word rhyme link. Yeah. I don't know why. Ah, every time. So good. Yeah. That's a, that's a perfect example of enjoys it and destroys it, treating the relationship between those two as utterly self-evident in the way that a good rhyme can make a kinship between two words feel self-evident. But when you run through the ideas that you're actually conjoining there, it gives you pause. Right, Mm -hmm. enjoying and destroying being, yeah, conceptually linked. Ah, it's so good. And similarly, in the last quatrain, bosom sits and shame commits. Like, some sits commits. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Uh, These lines are just fun to say. (laughs) Yeah. This does feel like it's something that students are often surprised with Shakespeare's sonnets is how argumentative they are, mm-hmm. which I think there, there are a lot of reasons why people are maybe unprepared for that, but it, it is even weird at some level. If you, if you take them as a whole, even if you compare them to other Renaissance sonnet sequences, there's something almost lawyerly at times about how much argumentation is being rushed through how quickly and the way that, you know, the, I think the first 17 or so, are all doing this kind of like, hey, dude, you should get married and have kids thing. Um, And the range of stratagems that the poet, you know, has recourse to (laughs) to try and sell this guy on getting married, having kids are wonderfully varied, Uh, far more varied than you could ever imagine someone having, having recourse to in ordinary life. I mean, that's why you need to do, you know, whatever, 175 of them, because you got to keep working those ideas out. Yeah, yeah. Lines just ain't enough space. And you can see him throwing in like an including but not limited to in one of these arguments to make it like cover a bit more ground than you might realize when you're signing it. Yeah, I mean, in a weird way, that's actually like 
I realize that that was probably a joke or at least partially a joke, but I feel like there's something so pregnant in that idea, which is that there's a, often a, a quality in which like things that could be merely legalistic take on a poetic quality. So like the including but not limited to in a contract is like a cover your ass mechanism. And in a lot of poems has a sort of quality of like, I need to list just enough or I need to create just enough repetition that you have this sense of like, oh, this covers everything, doesn't it? Like there's there's nowhere to hide from this argument. Well, that's actually hotly debated among lawyers. Some find the phrase including but not limited to profoundly annoying because there's no implication that including means limited to. So you'll see documents that begin with for the purposes of this document, including means, including, but not limited to. Yeah. And a, a lawyer friend actually said to me once, at that point, why don't we just enclose a dictionary with every document we produce? Oof. <laughs> We've, I'm, I'm telling a story I heard from a tax lawyer, so I think we can go on to the next poem. Yeah, it's yeah. time to, yeah, time to go. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> All right, the next one that I wanted to do is called Ozymandias by Percy Shelley. The sonnet tradition gets taken up by a lot of people between Shakespeare and Percy Shelley. One of the things that I wanted to emphasize is the extent to which Shelley's sonnet, Ozymandias, feels like it is almost entirely removed itself from the sonnet tradition. So it is like a 14-line poem. It does rhyme. It no longer uses address in the same way that we see in a lot of Renaissance sonnets. On top of that, it's really hard to break it apart. If you follow the rhyme scheme, there's really no suitable place to break the poem into. It's sort of interlocking. And that actually winds up fitting with another weird quality of the poem, which is that it has a frame narrative, something that I think we all recognize from reading like uh, Wuthering Heights or Frankenstein, but is really weird to put into a poem that's only 14 lines long. Um, so this is a sonnet. It was actually written uh, as part of a sonnet writing competition. Um, Shelley had a friend named Lee Hunt who loved having poets over and making them write sonnets on the spot. And he actually uh, told Shelley and another poet um, that they should write about the subject and even sort of laid out the basic premise of the poem. And Shelley's sonnet, you know, sort of is really inventive with how it manages to treat what could be a very familiar premise in a really dynamic uh, sort of original way. Ozymandias. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command Tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them, and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains, round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. I never knew that this was part of a sonnet writing competition. This is one of my favorite poems of all time. And I can't believe that this is for a competition. That's insane. Some of Keats's sonnets were written under the same situation. Like, I think the, the cricket and the grasshopper was just like, Lee Hunt was like, hey, how was dinner? Now write a sonnet. 
Okay. Anyway, sorry. For the record, as our token new critic, I still don't know that, even though you've told me. Okay. Yeah. The meteorite that this poem fell out of contained no backstory about how it was constructed. Precisely. The colossal wreck within the colossal wreck. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So... If we think about this as a poem of address, the address is really backloaded. I was just going to say, the address in this is crazy, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because it only comes from this engraving on the pedestal. And if you go back from that, before you get to the engraving, you look at this thing ruined in the sand. And when you're doing that, you're not even seeing the pedestal. You're seeing all of these chunks of it. Before that, you have this traveler who's never introduced to us from an antique land. And he just sort of describes finding this in a desert. We have no idea why he's telling us this story. So there's sort of like the message is arriving with us at such a great remove, but it's, it's also getting to us, which seems to be one of the things that the poem is fascinated by because even though it's a poem about the futility of Ozymandias's conquest, he has succeeded in getting his name all the way to the speaker of the poem, who identifies this as having traveled an astonishing distance, not only in space, but also in time, to the extent that he calls it an antique land. Right. And through multiple voices and through multiple speakers, right? Because it's the speaker talking to the traveler, then the traveler speaks, and then the engraving. Yeah, it's crazy. In terms of the way time works in the poem, the word that's preoccupying me is decay. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck. We have this active process of decay placed in this scene as if it were a static, solid, distinct, concrete object. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's really distinctive about this poem is that we are familiar with shifting sands as a metaphor for time. Like just sort of like in an hourglass, but also in, you know, the desert itself. And then because of that, the poem has to sort of view the dynamism of sand in a desert as something that is static enough to represent a change of a giant duration. I mean, the other presence, which like we haven't mentioned, is that there is also the sculptor of this. Yeah. Who's passed over without being directly named except in terms of his hand. And so the, the sculptor is also uh, mangled in the same way that the statue is mangled. The sculptor has also been disembodied and is only represented here by the hand that mocked them, the heart that fed. Well, and also on the works that don't exist, right? Look on my works, ye mighty in despair. Because the works, it makes it seem like because he's a king, you, the works are obviously referring to like some sort of kingdom or something, but because it's referred to as works, it feels more like an artistic work or some kind of monument or something, and nothing beside remains. That's not there either. It's just these long little stretches of time. So it's a lot. It's really preoccupied with the idea of what is there and what is not. Yeah. When the, uh, the sculptor is the one whose works do remain. Right. That's a very much a one-to-one correspondence. The statue is the work of this sculptor to the point that we actually get art criticism about it and speculation about the experience. It's very deliberately parallel. Yeah. One of the classic questions about this poem is, what does the antique traveler mean when he says that it's sculptor Weldo's passions read? Like, how does he know? <laughs> 
because our only access for information is the sculpture. But there is something about, you know, the sculpture in this, which the poem is kind of deputized as an accurate representation, you know, of Ozymandias. And it's not clear whether we're supposed to trust that report of the, the sculpture itself or if we have any choice. Yeah, I was going to say, because it feels, um, I've, I've been listening to History of Rome podcast again. Um, and the first like 12 episodes, 14 episodes are all about the founding of Rome, which is basically mostly bullshit. It's mostly just, you know, the myth of Romulus and Remus. And like, obviously that part's not great, but the podcast after that part um, with the estab- establishment of like the government structures, most of that, we don't really know how that's done either. And the, the evidence we have for that is from these sculptures that we have to trust telling their own history in this kind of broken way. It's a funny thing that uh, the podcast host keeps saying like, yeah, this is all, you know, we'll make of this what you will. You said so, I've like, been listening to the History of Rome podcast like it was a confession, like you were saying you'd fallen well, off the wagon. Because, yeah, because you said again, as if it's like, ah, back on that Rome podcast. I am. It's my Can't third time it through it. There's 175 episodes. Like... Listen to something I, else. <laughs> I have never heard of this, and I kind of listen to it now. I'm really sorry because you're never going to get your life back. There's 175 <laughs> 20 minute, 15 to 20 minute episodes. It's oh, that's perfect. I love I, this. Is not evidenced by our own podcast, but I love podcasts <laughs> that are less than 30 minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> They're like perfect for household chores. Yeah, they are. You get like one task done per one. So uh, the, anyway. the the thought I had is um, so. This is kind of anachronistic, but Dante Gabriel Rossetti calls sonnets a moment's monument. Hmm. And there is something about the poem itself, which is fragmentary. I mean, it includes ellipses, and it's not clear how we're meant to read the ellipses. Are they an elision or a pause or or what have you? And so the, the poem itself has this kind of gap in it, and it's also describing the sort of recovery or the sort of... Um, uh, salvage, mm-hmm. um, which is somehow related to the the thing that we found in the desert. And it feels like part of the way that works is that the romantics are writing at a time when the sonnet tradition is self-consciously a tradition. It's something from the past. So it, like, I don't think that Shakespeare thought that sonnets were a moment's monument. Mm-mm. I think that like you need a few other ideas in order to be able to get to the point of saying that a sonnet is a moment's monument. I think one of them is you need to really be into writing poems that are sort of spontaneously suggested by a certain kind of experience. But another is that for Rossetti, who of course is writing after Shelley, I'm kind of fudging the the, the dates. There's something about the the form of the sonnet, which automatically kind of suggests a sort of historical self-awareness or like you're creating something out of something from the past. And it feels like even though, Ozymandias is written way before Dante Gabriel Rossetti said that it, it sort of comes from a similar sort of sensibility that the form of the poem is kind of tied up in this process of recovering something from the past and trying to make art out of it. It's useful that you say that, Chan, because one of the things I was going to ask is what does this poem give us because it is written in a sonnet form? And one of the big things that I think it gives us is the fact that it is acknowledging that it is coming from this longer tradition because it's so preoccupied with time and what remains. The fact that this is kind of, you know, a sonnet in that long tradition of sonnets, that feels right. That feels relevant because the actual form itself, I'm not sure that, you know, the the way that the rhyme scheme kind of unfolds, the fact that it's not 
a perfect it's not perfectly like a b a b etc etc it's not like a perfect elizabethan it's not a perfect petrarchan sonnet um Mm -hmm. it's very aware of itself as a sonnet and part of that tradition but it's also very aware that it's moving away from that tradition and that it's kind of taking what it needs and forming something else from it yeah definitely i find that my eyes keep returning to the rhymes at the end even though i've already traced all the rhymes and noted which end word rhymes with which other end word or words it my eye keeps going back and keeps probing it like it's an aching tooth or something it feels unresolved even though it's perfectly crafted yeah yeah and and the hinge is kind of around like things and kings so yeah you're going along and you could have, if it were not for lifeless things, you could have what would kind of be like an octave and a sestet. But because lifeless things comes in, I think, the seventh line, and then King of Kings comes in the tenth line, you fail at having the kind of octave sestet, you know, eight-line, six-line structure. And instead, the anticipation of the of King of Kings preempts it or the fact that king of kings sticks around longer than it's supposed to messes it up well it's actually really interesting because in terms of like thematically or like logically what's happening in the poem the sestet is where we start getting the words you know and on the pedestal these words appear that's the start of the sestet so that actually works that's okay octave and sestet we've moved on to a new action now and that's what governs the rest of the poem really But because of the way the rhyme scheme works and because you can't help but link the two pieces of a rhyme together, the two parts of a rhyme together, it it bridges over that that logical turn. So you you really want to read the poem as all of a piece, all of one kind of unfolding thought, rather than kind of breaking it into the logical turns of the argument or the logical turns of the construction. Yeah. That's really useful, whereas Shakespeare really leans into that turn, really leans into where this logic shifts. Shelley really doesn't really is working hard against that. Yeah, it it feels like a carpenter hiding the seam in something. Yeah. Even though they're doing very distinct things with this form, they're both reacting to the structure that it imposes. They're both still engaged in carpentry despite building completely different constructs for us to interact with. We're we're really feeling why this theme is different from our previous ones, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So our last poem tonight is super contemporary. In fact, it's so contemporary that the book that it's published in hasn't been published yet. (laughs) It's getting published a little bit later in 2018. This is by Terrence Hayes. Terrence Hayes is a professor at the University of Pittsburgh. And he's writing a sonnet sequence right now. The title of the book that's about to come out is called American Sonnet for My Past and Future Assassin. And every poem is also titled American Sonnet for My Past and Future Assassin. So I have one of those for tonight. I lock you in an American sonnet that is part prison, part panic closet, a little room in a house set aflame. I lock you in a form that is part music box, part meat grinder to separate the song of the bird from the bone. I lock your persona in a dream-inducing sleeper hold while your better selves watch from the bleachers. I make you both Jim and Crow here. As the crow, you undergo a beautiful catharsis trapped one night in the shadows of the gym. 
As the gym, the feel of crow shit dropping to your floors is not unlike the stars falling from the pep rally posters on your walls. I make you a box of darkness with a bird in its heart, voltas of acoustics, instinct, and metaphor. It is not enough to love you. It is not enough to want you destroyed. So this poem announces from the very beginning, I lock you in an American sonnet, that not only the title tells us that it's part of this sonnet tradition, this is kind of signaling from the very beginning that this is riffing and aware and playing with what that tradition means for this poet writing in this moment right now. There's a tradition, at least, I think it goes back to Dunn, at least, of... of, of, um thinking about sonnets as being little rooms. And part of what's weird about this is at some level, this is a curse poem. So I'm thinking about like in our first episode, we did that great Frank Bedard poem about nine 11. That's, that's, you know, in the form of a curse. And it has that quality uh, where it's, it's saying I lock you in an American sonnet that is part prison, part panic closet, a little room in the house set aflame. But then the other thing that's really strange about this is as a cursed the nature of the curse keeps changing over the course of it and specifically the nature of the room. So I think, you know, I was, I was really unsure why there's a pun on gym as in gymnasium. So like the, the pun on crow, both Jim crow and also crow as in the bird makes perfect sense. And there's a long history there, but I was wondering what the gymnasium is doing for the poem and it feels like one of the things that it's doing, and I'm not sure how this plays out, is that the room that the action of the poem is locked in goes from being a little room at the beginning of the poem, a panic closet, part prison, part panic closet, a little room in a house set of flame, to being a gym, which is a kind of comedically giant room, but also a room that is like chained shut. I mean, those are my memories of, you know, uh, going to school on open house nights, and also a room that is weirdly sort of a site of <laughs> embarrassment and restriction and yeah. stuff for most people. And I think for anybody who, who, who doesn't enjoy uh, high school. So my, my starting point would have to do with the way that it's taking the convention of the sonnet as a little room and then making the little room a giant room, but a room that's still sort of weirdly cavernous and unpleasant. Well, it's also a room, regardless of whether how much you hated high school or not, it is a room that has very specific conventions that are inscribed on it. It does have pep rallies. It does have gym class. It does have basketball games. It's very universal. So one of the weird things about that room is that even though it is large and cavernous, it it does still have restrictions kind of placed on it. It has conventions that govern it. You don't use a gym to cook dinner in, right? Every room has conventions that are inscribed on it, but a gym is a particular one that also has that kind of large cavernous quality. Well, and hence being the appropriate instrument for separating the persona, the uh, constructed, socially accessible sense of self rather than the true self from the rest of the psyche. I think the most interesting thing about this enclosure metaphor that shifts over the course of the poem is how it shifts from a space in which the victim of the curse is confined to a space that the victim of the curse constitutes himself Mm -hmm. as the gym. 
as the gymnasium, as the space, the feel of crow line break shit dropping to your floors. At the beginning, we have I lock you in an American sonnet that is part prison, part panic closet. By the end of the poem, it's I lock you up as an American sonnet. Yeah, Yeah. and it also feels like the condition of being both Crow and Jim is a play on caged birds as a, a sort of really venerable poetic tradition. And here, the image of a bird in a gymnasium works very differently because the bird has a lot of space to flap around in, but is still really in a state of sort of um, like kind of miserable confinement. Like I'm, I'm just sort of thinking about like visualizing a bird in a gymnasium. On the one hand, it can, it can move around as much as it wants, but also in a way that is sort of hopeless. Yeah. What this poem toggles between very well, right. Is um, the space of the poem itself as a room, as a, right a stanza as we've mentioned in other episodes a stanza means room in italian so not only is every stanza of a poem a room but in particular as sean mentioned coming from the dun tradition a, a sonnet is particularly aware of itself as kind of this room but furthermore it's not just the like 14 lines and conventions of the poem that are the room it's the sonnet tradition itself that is also the room right So by the time we get to the gym, it's not really the room itself anymore that's so confining the gym. The gymnasium is large. The 14 lines are larger. It's not that that he's talking about anymore by the time we get down there. That's more like the tradition of the sonnet. There's a lot for me to work with from Shakespeare to now, but it's still got all of these conventions. It still has all of these kind of limitations on it that I'm flapping against. I think one element of why that works is that to some extent – a poem is a script for the consciousness of the reader. The poem is laying out a series of metaphorical leaps or argumentative steps that the reader's consciousness will experience. And so a poem is self-evidently suitable as a instrument for locking up a psyche because to some extent it already is putting a psyche on rails or putting a psyche in a set of corridors. There's a natural association between the circuit board that it's putting your psyche on as a reader and the circuit board that the self of the victim of the curse is being confined to by the poem. Yeah. And it also feels like, there's a sort of self-consciousness that comes with that. I think the idea of, of a poem as a kind of rail, like um, like a, a railroad that your psyche can be put on is suggestive of a condition where you have to watch yourself undergoing something. So I'm thinking about the line, I lock your persona in a dream-inducing sleeper hold while your better selves watch from the bleachers. It feels like throughout the poem there's a kind of doubleness being forced on the addressee of the poem, which seems really evocatively familiar to the speaker of the poem. This feels like a silly question, but do you guys have a sense of who the you should be in this poem? I mean, obviously it's a black poet and speaking to, I, speaking to a white audience, Jim and Crow. But my question, the reason I'm asking that is this poem in particular of the whole series is so engaged with this lyric tradition yeah. Is this, is the you also like 
the sonnet tradition? Is the you the sonnet itself, the form itself? Because sometimes it seems like, I mean, it's all of these things, which there, which might very well be that we're kind of supposed to be tripping through all of them as possibilities each time. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I see your point that it's, it's not, it's not enough to say that it's, it's not enough to say that it's a black poet and that American sonnet for my past and future assassin is implicitly addressing a white reader or a certain kind of imagined white reader. It feels like on top of that, it's also a sort of ars poetica or a manifesto because it's also describing what sort of thing you can do to someone by writing a sonnet. Right, exactly. Yeah, like the, the title announces itself as being for this past and future assassin, whatever, this white audience. But the fact that it is a kind of poem that is preoccupied with itself as part of this like longer poem that it is trapped within i i like this longer poetic tradition that it is trapped within i it feels like that you is a a little bit more complicated right because the last two lines voltas of acoustics instinct and metaphor it is not enough to love you it is not enough to want you destroyed feels like it suggests a kind of ambivalence about poetic tradition in some ways, it reminds Terence Hayes is a great poem about Wallace Stevens, mm-hmm. which is sort of tracking an ambivalence about his clear sort of loving familiarity with Wallace Stevens' poetic technique and devices, but a simultaneous revulsion at Wallace Stevens' sort of personal racism and hatefulness. And it feels like there's a similar thing going on here. Since we've gotten to those last two lines, what intrigues me most about them is the fate that the speaker is being confined to by this same instrument that he is using on the addressee. Mm -hmm. It is not enough to love you. It is not enough to want you destroyed. Mm -hmm. The conundrum that the speaker is confronting is what leads to the construction of this hellish environment that the consciousness, the abstracted, severed, mutilated consciousness of the addressee is being confined to, is made necessary by the conundrum that the speaker finds himself confronting in those last two lines. It is not enough, line break, to love you. It is not enough to want you destroyed. We talked in the Frank Bedart poem that you were right to bring us back to, Sean, about the need for an afterlife to inflict the level of punishment that the crime deserves. The speaker is, I think, trapped by this necessity in the same way that the addressee is. Yeah. And it recontextualizes a lot of the devices that are contrived to inflict the punishment when we have this reference to the speaker loving the addressee that recontextualizes the mutilation of the consciousness of the addressee as surgery rather than violence, potentially. Hence, you have the better selves, the potential of isolating the persona and thereby remaking this psyche that's being confined. But these last two lines while bringing that reading home indicate that it's irresolvable, that that's not a potential resolution for this structure any more than 
killing this trapped consciousness and getting it over with would be. Yeah. And it also feels like it's, it's playing on a, a sense that there's a certain kind of destructive love that the poem is concerned with. Another way of understanding the gymnasium is that there's an experience of being put on display that is like a form of adulation that also is like really dehumanizing. And that when it says, I lock your persona in a dream inducing sleeper hold while your better selves watch from the bleachers, the scene that you imagine there is one of cheering, but also of kind of um, condescension, you know, sort of simultaneous uh, at like adulation and, and sort of disdain, which feels like it's one of the things the poem is trying to navigate is a, a certain kind of like, like vulgar and destructive idealization what this sends me to is Ginsburg's line in Howell when he says, who broke down crying in white gymnasiums, naked yeah. and trembling before the machinery of other skeletons. That, that's almost a one-to-one corollary here. Yeah. So I'd like to talk a little bit more about the sense of the the speaker being trapped by this mechanism in the same sense that the addressee is. How far do you think we can take that? I think the first line gives us something to work with there. I lock you in an American sonnet that is part prison, part panic closet, a little room in a house set aflame. Even though that is to the addressee, and the Amer- but the writer is writing that American sonnet. So to describe the American sonnet as part prison, pan- part panic closet, a panic closet is actually, I mean, terrifying, but is actually a safe place. Right? Yeah. And that feels very important that the safety of it is very is being held up by the poet. So although it is being addressed to somebody else, the sonnet is actually functioning as something that is confining, but also safe, which we're kind of, that's a pretty familiar trope when you're thinking about formal structures in a poem. But the fact that it is also kind of, right, I lock you in a form, the form that the poem, poet is writing, the speaker is writing, that is part music box, part meat grinder. Um, you get a kind of similar push-pull, the music box is kind of gives something the meat grinder doesn't quite or takes something away or changes, deforms. I don't know. Well, I, I was thinking about, like, there's a Wordsworth sonnet that is about the sonnet and begins, nuns fret not at their convent's narrow room and hermits are contented with their cells. So the image is that sonnets are kind of like the cells of a monastery, which are both places of confinement but also places of safety. And so it feels like this is very much playing on that convention of the sonnet as being like a place of discipline, but also a place of safety. Mm-hmm. I think this poem is kind of saying to be an American poet is to be kind of part of this longer tradition and this longer struggle, this longer engagement, just because it announces itself as an American sonnet, which says to me an English language sonnet, which says to me, you know, Shakespeare to now how do I kind of fit? I mean, that's something that comes up in a lot of poetry that is aware of itself as part of the lyric tradition that you have, what does it mean to be part of this long tradition that it is kind of a prison, but it also is, is also life giving that you have this tradition to pull from and, and change. The image of the meat grinder really suggests that 
ambivalence to me because on the face of it, a meat grinder would be precisely the wrong instrument for the kind of operation we're imagining here, especially yeah. if we try to imagine it to any extent as 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 surgical yeah. rather yeah. than violent. It, this is like the, the Emily Dickinson poem, Split the Lark to Find the Tune. Right. Like, it's not how that works. <laughs> but so this uh this instrument that's being applied to the victim of the curse being sort of unwieldy it's got this great big crank and these this great big teeth and it's attempting psychic surgery that ambiguity very much maps onto the ambivalence of the poetic speaker about the tradition this is kind of moving back a second, but I did just want to double check. One part of this poem that I think is a little frustrating for me is the voltas of acoustics, instinct, and metaphor. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he's talking about voltas as they appear in sonnets. Sonnets have voltas. Ha ha ha. Acoustics, poems make sounds against each other. He's got metaphor in the poem. Instinct is something like, you know, poetic pluck, I guess. But it feels like a... Is that like just a cheap recipe for a sonnet? Is that what we're supposed to read out of that one? To me, it's that like the rapid conflation of them is what we're supposed to have our attention drawn to. Okay. Because it is weird where those are not part of any list, you know? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like a list that like at one level acoustics and metaphor you can see how that relates to creating sonnets and then instinct kind of but it feels like they're so different in kind from each other that it's hard to know how to make it work Mm -hmm. so i'm not sure what the implication is except to go back to the the idea earlier that a sonnet puts someone's consciousness on rails Mm -hmm. and that there's something about the way that a poem turns that forces us into accepting as inevitable connections or conflations that aren't inevitable. And and that that is part of the kind of power or the manipulation of poetry. Well, I think the inclusion of acoustics on the list makes that argument sound more credible to me because acoustics goes directly back to the enclosure within a three-dimensional space that's being used as the image for confining a consciousness when we think of acoustics we think of the acoustics of a concert hall we're once again going to a three-dimensional space so i think acoustics is the most readily activatable item on the list yeah or a gymnasium which has a certain kind of horrible acoustics yes a nightmare inducing acoustic (laughs) parting shots yeah i mean i it feels like the sonnet tradition is so big that we could have we could have done a lot of different things with it. And it feels like at some level we started talking about address, but we wound up talking about structure. Mm-hmm. And that one of the things about the sonnet as a type of poem is that it's often consumed with turning address into structure, turning a certain kind of rhetorical process into something that is reified or calcified or something like that. And I think that has to do with the peculiar length of it, that one reading of it is put on rails to use an earlier term. But if you read it a few times, it suddenly seems like a kind of slab of of statement. (laughs) 
and something that's much more solid and you know it's it's no longer linear because it's solid yeah it encourages that kind of closedness to it right so that that thing that we say closed forms versus opened forms this isn't sonnets don't encourage that kind of loose ending where where you're kind of like spinning wheels in terms of what the ending like kind of kicks you out into the universe to think about it the form kind of encourages you even if it does kind of leave a loose open ending it encourages you to kind of reinscribe it within this within the space given that last poem has really drawn me into thinking of sonnets in terms of confining one's consciousness to a distinct space we've really seen all of these poets interacting with the fact of being circumscribed, of having their thoughts structured by the context in which those thoughts are running. I think one of the interesting things that really came up for me in this episode is the sonnet tradition makes so much more sense within the sonnet tradition. That, mm-hmm. And when I say that, I mean that I remember reading Shakespeare sonnets at Haverford with you guys in our seminar and the first time you read those Shakespeare sonnets you know them they're familiar you're making things you're making connections things are interesting but it is a form and it is a type of poem that every poem rewards rereading but sonnets reward rethinking in this really really lovely way because the more of them you accrue the more they speak to each other. So it always feels like you're kind of in this echo chamber, in this like kind of acoustic space. You can't really read one without pulling all of the other ones you have in. And especially when you kind of have one that's like the Taze poem that's so aware of that. What that makes me think of is I took a class on the Renaissance Lyric where we basically read nothing but sonnets. And the teacher would just pair you up with someone and would send you off and would be like, find every alternate reading of every line in the sonnet that you can. <laughs> just, like, I really think I cut my teeth as like a reader of poetry. It really took me to another level to just sort of like take a sonnet and just go through it for days. You can find dozens and dozens of like alternate ways of processing it, especially with Renaissance sonnets where you can, to a certain extent, you know, be a little bit agnostic about the punctuation of the Shakespearean sonnets and, and, you know, sort of lean on sound qualities. You really can just kind of like get into the sort of echo chamber feeling where the, the number of possible reference points and alternate meanings and puns and doubles just starts to really pile up on itself. Mm-hmm. The echo chamber is just a a chilling metaphor for the experience of sonnets generally, and especially of that last one. Mm -hmm. Like, like I'm going to look outside my window and make sure the universe exists. (laughs) A friend of mine used to talk about how, like, some literature is so is so self-referential that it is Skynet. Yeah, see again with the with the cybernetic metaphor. It's you you've gotta watch that, that episode of Black Mirror. That's the only thing I was thinking about this entire time. Yeah, yeah, yeah the one with John Hamm. Yeah. Mm, I like that John Hamm. That John Hamm. Dude could wear a sweater. <laughs>